This afternoon we are beginning a, another round of the Heidelberg Catechism, so starting back in Lord's Day 1. Um, and there, of course, is the well-known question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the psalmist in Psalm 73 wrestles with that question. And, and so I say that by way of preface so that you may also see that as we read this psalm together. So we'll read Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on that psalm, let's sing the first four stanzas of that psalm. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith, and we are just beginning that study over again this afternoon, so we find ourselves in Lord's Day 1, the very beginning of the Catechism on page 517. There the Catechism asks of us, What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the question that the Catechism asks of us is a question that, that hits us direct in the face, and it's a question that every human being must answer, and, and by the testimony of their lives, has answered. Every human being has a comfort to which they hold in life and in death, something that they hold on to that somehow gives them hope or reassurance or purpose or value in life. Everyone has something with which to answer that question, even though probably not everyone knows what that something is. Well, that question then takes us right to the heart of the Christian faith itself. What do you hold on to above everything else? Uh, Now, the, the question... The, the operative word there is, is the word comfort. What is your only comfort? And, and it's an important word. In the original German of the catechism, it's the word trost. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that rightly. I don't speak German. Uh, but T-R-O-S-T, trust. Um, and, and the meaning of that word is, is wider than, than simply comfort. Uh, when we speak of comfort in the English language, um, we, we are usually referring to something that makes us feel better um, in the midst of, of different adversities or, or trials, when we're sad or stressed. Uh, so we, we think of comfort food or a comforting hug, uh, something of that, of that nature. Now, the word trust certainly includes that, that which, makes us, uh, that which reassures us or makes us feel better in, in hard, stressed, or sad times. But what the Catechism is asking us is a bigger question than just just that. What makes you feel better? It's not just asking that. It's asking something more like, what is your lifeline? The word trust can can just as well be be translated as as a lifeline. Uh, What do you hold on to? It's something you'll hold on to when everything else is gone. What is your only lifeline in life and death? Or to ask it another way, what's the one thing that matters to you that you hold on to if everything else should fall apart? Uh, that, that is your trust, your, your comfort, your only refuge. And, and that's why there, there can only be one answer to that question. It's the one thing that, that matters more than everything else. The one thing that you would be prepared to give up everything else 
in order to still have? There, there can only be one answer to that. Now, different people will answer that question in different ways. Uh, for some, whether they would answer it this way or not, uh, the testimony of their lives says money. That's what I hold on to. That's what matters most to me. That's what I will keep if I must give up everything else. Uh, that's, that's my refuge. And if I lose that, I have no comfort left. So I will give my every effort, all my strength, to bolstering up that one refuge. For others, it may be something like, like family. A family is certainly a real comfort. And for many, family is what they would hold on to. If they lost everything else but could keep their family, that would be their ultimate refuge. Now, I trust that all of our hearts do resonate with, with some of those comforts to some extent. God has designed family, for example, to be a refuge. It should be a place of refuge. And yet, even families can fall apart. Even families can fail us, disappoint us, sometimes even betray us. Now, husbands and wives might walk out on us. Uh, husbands and wives or other members of the family might be the very source of the trouble that we are experiencing. Now, our children, too. Uh, if our children are our comfort, they, too, may disappoint us. Uh, they may walk away from us. They may walk away from the Lord. These are not things in our control. Is that an appropriate, ultimate comfort? So family is indeed a, a place of refuge, but it is not a sure refuge. There's sin, there's brokenness, there's even perhaps death that takes our family from us. There may be betrayal that breaks our family from within. Uh, For still others, it may be friendships. But that too is a burden that no friend should ever have to bear. To be your ultimate refuge is asking too much of them. Uh, who can bear that responsibility? All of us fail. We all disappoint. We, we change also as people. Uh, we lose interest. Uh, some old friendships die and new friendships grow. Friendships uh, can be broken. Friends can betray us. Uh, we, we find new friends. We forget old friends. Uh, God uh, sometimes gives us friends that last for a lifetime. Uh, and, and they certainly can be a refuge And yet even such a friend cannot bear the burden of being your ultimate refuge and trust. So what is your only refuge? It's a very direct and challenging question. And that's the question that the psalmist in in Psalm 73 is also wrestling with. Let me just give you some of the context for this psalm. Uh, So Asaph is is the author. We don't know exactly who who he is. He describes his situation in verses 1 through 3. He says, Truly, I I do admit, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he says, I'm not denying that God is good. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps, uh, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. For I saw the, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so, this is his struggle. Here's a man who's, who's believed all his life, and we can tell, uh, we'll see this later, we can tell he's an old man by this point. He's believed all his life that, that God is good to those who trust in Him. And now he's looking around and he's saying, 
seems like God is pretty good to the wicked and hasn't been so good to me. So he describes, he gives us a picture of of these people so we can at least understand where he's coming from. Verse 4, he says, They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, perhaps this gets lost in in the cultural translation here. In Israel, of course, it was a great blessing to be fat. Uh, it, was something that, it wasn't something looked down upon in their culture as, as it is in ours. So maybe if you want to translate this uh, into our culture, it might be um, they have healthy, flawless bodies, you know, toned six-packs or a perfect shape. Uh, he's looking out at the, at the wicked and saying, Lord, these are the bodies you give them. Now look at what you give, give me. Uh, and he goes on in verse 5, They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're not getting cancer. They're not facing danger. Uh, they're not struggling to pay their bills. God, where's the justice here? He says, uh, uh, so, so he compares them with those who, the rest of mankind, as in those who fear God, they are stricken. So here am I with a body that isn't as good as theirs, uh, with a body that's filled with pain or filled with, with, with diseases, with a bank account that's almost dry, with relationships that are fraught with difficulty. Here's a man then who reaches this point in his life where he says, what's, what's it all for? Why do I serve God when this is how God pays me back? Now I want us to, to even if we don't, share those same emotions, to at least understand where the psalmist is coming from. And that's particularly important because there are men and women here in our midst who do share these emotions, who really are in this, this kind of circumstance, who really do struggle with, with these questions. Uh, so we should at least be willing to step into the psalmist's shoes here and be honest that uh, this has been and perhaps is a real struggle for us. Uh, when people get away with ignoring God's law and, and they prosper, they get easy lives, they get early retirements, they get nice houses, they live comfortable, happy, and, and seemingly fulfilled lives, it disturbs us. This is a reality for every believer. It disturbs us. It bothers us to see it. It makes us wonder, what are we obeying God for? And that's all the more true when we find that our own lives are filled with all all manner of affliction. It's not for nothing this is a a psalm written by an old man, um, because it's especially at the end of our lives that we come to terms with this. Uh, we, we deal with the frailty, the brokenness of our own bodies, and we look out at the world and say, the world seems to be getting on just fine. So what kind of God does this to his people? And then on top of that success, God also often gives the unbelieving world power. Think of this psalm from the perspective of the persecuted church of today. Um, not only do the wicked prosper, but they exert power over us. Uh, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice loftily. So from a place up high, they threaten oppression. And to make matters worse, the psalmist finds that e- even believers around him are turning after these people. Verse 10, he says, Therefore his people, that is God's people, turn back to them and and somehow find no fault with them. 
So he's experiencing even people that ought to know better. Look over at the success of, the, of those who do not fear God, and they find a way to justify the lack of fear that these people have for God. And so we start to wonder, as if we're stepping into the psalmist's shoes, we start to wonder, as the psalmist was, am I being a fool for having spent my life trusting in the goodness of God? If God is unwilling to stand up for me, and if He allows these people to do what they please, and to get away with it, and He blesses them on top of it, am I a fool for trusting in such a God? Uh, Look, he says, God's own people are walking away in droves, walking back on their convictions that they ought to know better, and following the money and the success that's clearly had there in the world. Maybe, he wonders, they're right to do so. And so he admits that in verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he asks, What am I serving God for? So he finds himself in in this this bitter place, and I trust it's a place that all of us can relate to. We see evil people prospering, unbelievers enjoying at least earthly comforts, more than we do, and, and we look at our own lives, especially those of us who do deal with, with many afflictions, and we wonder, what's it for? Uh, what's the point? Why serve God when, when you, you can get everything you want without serving Him? Now, verse 15 is a turning point, uh, verses 15 and, and, uh, and 16 it's a turning point, but we want to spend some time on, on verse 15. So the psalmist knows that as a believer, he's not supposed to be thinking this way. We all know this. You're not supposed to have these sorts of doubts. Uh, so he acknowledges in verse 15, he said, If I had said I would speak this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's from that verse that you can, you can observe uh, that this is an older believer speaking here. He's talking about betraying the younger generation. And it's there in the next verse, uh, or in verse 17 as well. Um, he acknowledges uh, that, that he's running the risk of betraying the next generation by voicing his thoughts uh, about what seems to him the faithlessness of God. Um, and, and that's important to observe that this is an elderly man because it is often the elderly who go through this, this struggle the hardest, um, who've spent their entire lives believing that God is good, that God takes care of those who trust in Him, and they reach a, a certain age, and, and maybe their children have walked away from the Lord, or their children just don't, don't call them or don't care for them, and they start to wonder, it, was it all worth it when, when the rest of the world doesn't seem to suffer the way that, that we do? So first we see he's an older man. Uh, Secondly, as an old man, dealing with these thoughts, you can see that he has a sense of shame about them. He has a sense of shame about these thoughts. He he says out loud, uh, or he, he, he admits that if he said out loud what he was thinking, he would betray the next generation of God's people. Uh, so he recognizes uh, as, an, as a middle-aged or an older uh, person, I'm supposed to be an influence for good. If 
for the next generation. I'm supposed to be the one who stands here and says, uh, you know, trust God. God will take care of you. Uh, God provides for those who fear Him. He recognizes that's the role I'm supposed to be filling. And, and if I was to say what I really thought, I would betray those who were expecting to hear that message. And it makes it, you can imagine, it makes it all the more agonizing for a believer in that position um, because he's trapped. If he says nothing uh, and goes on saying what he's supposed to say, then, then he's living a double life. He's, he's telling people to believe in a God who he himself doesn't believe in. Or he can give expression to his envy and his doubt and his frustration with God. And then he says, I'd be betraying them. I'd be letting the next generation down. I think some of us might, might be in just that sort of place. And he admits in verse 16, When I thought to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Where do you go as a person in that position who's not supposed to be having those doubts? Where do you go uh, to deal with these questions? You, you can't just will your faith back into existence. You might want to, uh, but you can't. Uh, you can't make yourself believe. Uh, and so he says it's a wearisome task. It seems the only way out is either you can, you can go on living a double life or you can step out, deny your faith, and, and, and step out into the great black unknown of, of agnosticism, of not knowing what you believe. Now maybe there's, there's some comfort there in, in no longer having to stand up for anything, no longer having to defend something you don't believe, and, and there are some who take that route. I trust we can then at least appreciate the place the psalmist is in. And it is here, it is in moments like this, precisely like this, when our faith, which is not sight, and feels a thousand miles from being sight, when faith is truly faith. It is in moments like that, that faith takes its role. Uh, the psalmist knows well the thoughts of his heart, and he admits them. He's not hiding them from God. He admits he's embittered against God. And yet, by faith, he does not surrender to that envy. What instead does the psalmist do? He says he comes into the sanctuary of God. That's where faith takes action. Um, he, he does not accept his bitterness, nor does he accept that the limited, limitedness of what he sees is all there is to see, though Many have accepted that and stepped out into the black unknown. No, the psalmist steps into the sanctuary of God. You see, there, there is a willingness in faith. There is a will to faith. It makes choices in those sorts of moments. Uh, the psalmist is facing a choice. Do I stand before a God who I will acknowledge is bigger than my sight, or do I reject such a God? Uh, there's two ways you can go. Faith, says, says, uh, says the author of Hebrews, uh, faith that is seen is not faith. I think that's Hebrews. Uh, faith, that is not, faith that is seen is not faith. For who hopes for what he can see? But if we hope for what we uh, do not see, we wait for it with patience. The psalmist takes that approach. Uh, he chooses to stand before the sanctuary of God, to be taught by God. And there he says, there I discerned the end of the wicked. The reality is that there will always be tension on this life, 
There will always be tension between faith and sight. That's the very nature of faith. But one thing can be said. There is, as the psalmist learns, there is also a measure of faith that gives real sight. Real, clear, and unmistakable sight that you will only obtain by faith. Uh, You would not see except when standing on the foundation of faith in the God who speaks and the God who calls us to himself. So, uh, to give an example, I have no doubt that God made this world. I have no doubt that the mind-boggling complexity of, of, of the billions of cells in my body and in every living thing, plant and animal, is the divine work of God. I have no doubt that this, this very universe, the existence of this universe, uh, the, to, to ask the question, why isn't there nothing? I believe the answer is because there is God. I have no doubt of those things, and yet I cannot see them except when standing on the foundation of faith. Uh, but there, standing on that foundation, I do see them. They are clear. Uh, they are unmistakably there. That's the experience the psalmist has here. Uh, He does not see by himself the end of the wicked, but he comes into the sanctuary of God, stands there on faith, and then sees it very clearly. Uh, He says, I discern their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You notice his confidence there. Truly. In the Hebrew, it's amen. Amen. Indeed, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Do you see the confidence, the faith in this man standing in the presence of God? So, why? Why should I wash my hands in innocence? Back to his question in verse 13. And and strive to serve a God who allows the wicked to prosper? Because not all is as it seems. God, for God's own purposes, has set them in slippery places. And they are going to fall into utter ruin. This he sees and knows from the foundation of faith. It is not worth it to go after them. And it never will be. Their their ease, their comfort uh, are little more than a dream. And then they will wake up. Their 80 years are going to fly by in a moment, and then they will stand before their Creator. And what then will they have to present to Him with hands stained with blood and riches accumulated for nothing? So the psalmist sees with the eyes of faith. And he discerns from that vantage point also his own sin. He he turns back to himself and, and observes, when my soul was embittered, When I was that man refusing to to stand there on that foundation and my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, he realizes now I was being a brute. I was brutish and ignorant like a beast before God. Uh, The word translated brutish um, in our translation, it means something between stupid and, and inhuman. So he's saying these are not even thoughts that pertain to a human made in the image of God. 
These are the kinds of thoughts that belong to animals. He recognizes that our hearts were created. Um, it's written on our hearts to know our God. And, and, and the heart that falls in love with the world and becomes estranged from God, he realizes, is a heart that's closed to the very thing for which it was created. And it ceases to be truly even human. It is the heart of an animal following passions, chasing after pleasures, and empty in relation to God. There on the vantage point of faith, he sees himself also as he is. So we come back to our original question. What is your only comfort in life and death? What we see in this psalm is uh, what can be best described as the battle of comforts. The battle of comforts. Will your comforts be your possessions, your riches, your ease, your, uh, your retirement, the esteem of others, if it will be, if those will be your comfort, you will find yourself, like the psalmist, sooner or later, estranged from God. Uh, so either estranged from God, having forsaken Him like the wicked, to just go and pursue after those things, or embittered against God like the psalmist, uh, after discovering, which you will discover at some point in your life, that God's not going to give you all of those things in the measure that you would like to have them. You will discover that sooner or later. What will your comfort be? Well, the psalmist, as he stands there in the presence of God, he he reorients himself. Um, he, He sort of recovers that human heart, the heart that's made to know and love God. And, and he rediscovers what ought to be his true comfort and refuge. He says, nonetheless, I am continually with you. You, God, hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, when these short span of years are over, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? It's another way of saying, what will my comfort in in life and death be? And, And on earth, there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, and indeed, they will. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good. Or that is to say, it is the good that I will pursue to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. There he lands on the, on the comfort that ought to be the comfort of every man that knows and fears God. As for me, it is good to be near God. I will make the Lord God my refuge. So he recognizes there is nothing more valuable than to be in the presence of the living, righteous, holy God. To know Him and to live in peace and in relationship with Him. There is no greater portion. If, if you have to say, what, what will be your portion in life? He says, I will take that and, and you can have everything else. Uh, there is no greater portion than to be in the presence of God. If the world has everything else and you have nothing but the love and nearness of God, you are more than rich. And, and that's why the catechism begins at the place where it does. For us as Christians, we know and, and we need to know that there is only one way to know God, to have that as your refuge. You can't just choose it. Uh, there, there is only one way to have it, and that is through Jesus Christ. 
through the Savior whom God has sent. That is a, a, a refuge, a comfort, a good, more precious than any other, but one that will only be obtained through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, so the Catechism answers, uh, I have no comfort except that I belong to Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior, who brings me into the presence of God. Uh, so, just as the Lord Jesus declares, no one comes to the Father except by me, there Jesus declares, this is the purpose of your life, to come to the Father, and it will not happen except through Him. Well, let it be that you desire nothing but the presence of God, in heaven or on earth, that you desire nothing more than Christ who brings you before the Father. That is our portion, and it is a better portion than any other. Uh, So Christ is our refuge, Christ is our lifeline, and Christ is that rock on which we are secure. And that's why we do this every Sunday. That's why we go through the Heidelberg Catechism year after year to remember the essential truths of the Christian faith by which our hearts are taught to know Jesus Christ and through Christ to come before God. If that hope, if you're going to say, that will also be my portion, then there are also certain things we need to know. That's the the second question of the Catechism. What do you need to know in order to have, to live and die by, in the joy of that comfort? Uh, what do you need to know in order for that to be your portion? Uh, the Catechism summarizes the things we need to know for that joy to be ours, and it gives us three, three headings, and this will shape the way that we spend the next, the next uh, year as we go through the Catechism. First, we need to know that we're sinners. You cannot have that portion and that joy unless you first know that you're a sinner. We need to know what that means. We need to know how serious that is. We need to know what the consequences for that are. Uh, There's no way we will ever find the joy of the psalmist if we don't first recognize the, the profound fallenness in our hearts that turns us away from that joy in the first place. Now, there's no way we'll know no true joy if we don't first deal with the real brokenness that keeps us from, from such joy. Second, we need to know that Christ came to die for sinners like us. Uh, we need to know how he saves them, how it works. Uh, we need to know what his death means, how his blood covers our guilt, how his resurrection gives us new life. Uh, We need to know that we've died with him, in a sense, and what that means. And we need to know that we we come to new life in him and what that means. We need to know how how it is that unclean, perverse, fallen sinners find their way into the perfect, glorious presence of God. And finally, we need to know what it means, as those who have been saved, to now live with God and live for God. In other words, we need to know what it means... After this psalm is complete, when you've said, I will make God my portion, how now shall I live? And that's the structure of the catechism as well. We need to know we're sinners, we need to know how we're saved, and we need to know how now shall we live. And so every week in the afternoon, this is what we'll be doing. We'll be opening God's word to remember these things and also to learn new and and deeper dimensions of how these things are true and why, why they matter. We want with all the strength we have, to live and die in the joy of this comfort. And so, brothers and sisters, as we we move forward, as we begin to study these things again, 
Let us make it our purpose to not just be passive in hearing these things preached, but to grow in our knowledge and understanding, to go deeper, to see broader, uh, to reflect on, on the, the ways that we have not before seen in which these doctrines are true and necessary to be true. Uh, and, and let's do that so that our faith and joy may grow deeper and stronger, as, as that's also what the psalmist here pursues. Uh, in that vein, let's not make the second service a lesser priority uh, than the first. Uh, not only because you know, this is where God's people are gathered, and so therefore this is where we also ought to be, uh, but also because, because by, it's by sitting before God's word that we grow in the knowledge of the most, the most essential foundations of our faith. Our joy and the, and the joy that flows out of it uh, by being here will grow to be deeper still and greater still and even more unshakable and overflowing for the glory of God. That's our life's joy and our life's purpose. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Psalm 73, stanzas 7, 8, and 9.